Welcome to episode 43 of Farmerama. This month, we turn to a much-loved friend of the show for some wisdom on cattle management. We get an introduction to the whole food system approach that is silver pasture, and we kick back in Sicily tasting some natural wine. But first, we turn to Deb Moses, a new farmer based near Madison, Wisconsin. Deb champions the cause of involving the very young in food growing a transformative experience that she discovered when she became a mother. I uh, started working um, with gardening and really young children when my son was born. Before then, I didn't have a lot of relationships with really young children for the most part. And uh, I had no idea how smart they were and how early on they were so smart. And I thought, oh, well, you can't teach a kid anything until they're at least in kindergarten. But I was so wrong. And he helped open my eyes to how much one learns, especially by experience and tasting and touching and smelling and how well that lends itself to gardening and food exploration and um, your taste preferences are developing that age and just the excitement and everything's new and and how wonderful that was. So um, an opportunity came where I was in Colorado to do a little bit work uh, around farm to preschool or what's called now farm to early care and education because it encompasses zero to five. And it was just magical to see children that would try something, especially that they had grown, and little children eating things I never would have guessed, like fennel and cabbage and sort of that peer pressure, positive peer pressure in groups of, of small children. If they all grew it and they all pulled it out of the ground and they all tried it together, it was really magical. A lot of teachers, especially if they haven't done any gardening in the past, there is a fear of not knowing what to do. And so to help get over that fear, it's wonderful to know that you are uh, actually a great candidate to learn with the children if you don't know anything. In fact, you're better if you don't know anything because you don't have preconceived notions and it's all an experiment and it's all a learning experience with children and you can model for them what it's like to try something new and to say, we're going to put these carrot seeds in the ground and we're going to water them and we're going to see what happens. And to know that even if it fails, even if you don't have carrots grow, you can usually always dig down and find some worms or you can (laughs) you know, say, I wonder why this happened. And who can we ask for advice? Or if a, a rabbit comes and eats your carrots, it's a great chance to pull out some books about rabbits and learn about rabbits. So there's always a learning opportunity and to never be, or to try to not be afraid if you don't know that it's actually a good, a good thing. But otherwise, just, yeah, starting small, keeping it simple, even a couple things in pots. Um, one child at my son's center, they didn't have much room for a garden, so they just had one small pot on their playground and they planted some uh, beet seeds that morning. And this boy was notorious for being very selective in his eating, didn't ever want to try anything new, was very, very picky. And they offered him some beets on a salad, actually, that, that morning. And he said, I'm not going to eat it. And they said, well, actually, this is what you just planted this morning. And these are beets. And he said, oh, okay, I'll, I'll try it. And he not only tried it, he loved it and asked for a second helping. So it happens, that transformation happens that fast. He didn't even see it sprout. He didn't pull it out of the ground. But just that connection. So the garden doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be a production. But it really, really makes a difference. 
Some partners of ours work in the inner city of Milwaukee, and they've been able to uh, help get like a CSA share for some of the child cares that are in this inner city, or especially places that don't have any room for a garden. Um, but they have like a little space for like a few pots, and the children have just been really enjoying some of this fresh food that they've really never even had a chance to even experience or have any idea how it grows. And that um, this is a great example of a woman that's um, she's a teacher, and she she's been cutting up cabbage and just kind of frying it in a little bit of butter, and the kids love it and they've been trying um, kohlrabi, they've been trying um, beets all orange uh, is, is one of their favorite things because they love saying it <laughs> but they're just trying all these amazing things and it's just a matter of, um, of giving it a shot and, and just having, having that be an available option so hopefully especially more and more children that are separated from the land and from being able to understand these things, um, even small things can, can make a big difference where my son was uh, going, there was a, a local CSA farmer, and he did um, provide them with a, a basket that he gave them at a discounted rate to sort of get them interested. It went pretty well, although they ended up um, ultimately just buying a few products from him wholesale. But in the meantime, the kids had a lot of fun trying the new things, and the cook had an interesting time trying the new things, <laughs> which sometimes they need a little guidance too, but um, it works out. But a, a neat thing that he did also was anybody from the center that bought a CSA, they bought a CSA membership, part of the sales from that would go towards discounting it for the center. He, he also gave a slight deal to the, the families, and so, but then also made that connection between what the kids get at school and what the kids get at home. And he didn't get to start this, but there is um, a possibility of having like a CSA pickup site at a center to also like, um, facilitate that and make it a more viable part of your business. As a grower, um, if you grow, just think about early care facilities in your growing. Um, what's wonderful is that they are often open year-round, so they can uh, purchase things in the peak of growing season. There's many different sizes, so there's different models. There's family daycares that are just you know five kids, and then there's other sites that are like 100 children. So it's really neat to be able to match your operation to that size, especially if you're more small scale, um, and a great way to approach them is to just go to the center and bring some veggies and just have a conversation about what do they use most often. Maybe it's a specialized CSA where they can try things. Maybe it's just selling them carrots and lettuce or things that they might use more often. Um, it's a relationship like anything else, but it's, uh, it's really a great outlet to consider. If you're a farmer or a grower, maybe you're already working with a local nursery or a daycare center, either as a supplier or in an educational capacity or both. If so, get in touch. We'd love to hear more of these stories. Greg Judy is an enthusiastic mob grazer based in Missouri. We featured him back in episode 36, and you'll also find a brilliant short on our feed that focuses on his ideas on mob grazing. Abby bumped into Greg again at the Savannah Institute Perennial Gathering in Wisconsin in the United States. He explained to her how his herd remineralized the land for him, and a few other grazing tips. This was recorded in a hotel lobby, so please do excuse the background noise. Basically, Abby, what we're doing is we're trying to focus on what happens in nature, and I'm back up to this. We try and look at our operation. What would happen before a white man arrived with a firearm? And basically, we want to you know, inject our expertise. We want to 
prop, put a crutch underneath all of our animals, you know, make sure they, they perform. And what we've done is just the opposite. We've pulled all the crutches out of our cows. We don't worm, we don't use antibiotics, we don't feed them any grain. Any animal that can't give us a calf on grass is history. We just get rid of them. So I feel like unless you are the predator, the owner of that flock or herd should be the predator. If you aren't willing to get rid of the animals that don't work, you're never going to have a good sustainable herd. Uh, we're actually letting the animals uh, select from a free choice enterprise system where we have 16 different minerals and they're all in their individual boxes and what uh, what this does is the animals as they're rotated around the farms if they go into a pasture that let's say doesn't have magnesium in the grasses or in the soil the animals can go to that box and select what they're what they need and an animal poops out about 80 percent of that mineral back onto the farm and so over time by having by having the animals have selection they select what's missing onto your paddock. And so we call that herd our traveling laboratory. Here's the, here's the thing. When you feed minerals in a complete mineral where they're all mixed together in one, animals may go after sulfur and in the, and in the process of taking in trying to get the sulfur, they actually overeat on, let's say, phosphorus. And the phosphorus ties up the use of what they were after which would be this, you know, whatever. And so you're really not doing anything. I mean, you're, you're actually hurting the animal because they're eating a bunch of mineral, they're costing you money, and they're not solving the problem. So the animals have actually traveled around our farm, putting back the mineral exactly what was missing. And people say, well, animals can't do that. They're not that damn smart. Yes, they are. Their lives depend on it. They de depend on knowing what they need. And it's kind of neat. You can watch the cows go to that mineral feeder. They'll stick their nose in on one meter and they'll just lick the dust off their nose. They'll go by the next box. They won't even take that. And then they might get to one they need and they'll take a several licks out of that mineral. And so it's kind of neat to see the, the cattle select what they need. Greg has so many tips and tricks, we couldn't resist also sharing his thoughts on running a single herd all year round, including 50 bulls. Let's say you have a grass finishing herd. You have a heifer herd, you have a cow herd, you have a bull herd. If you're moving three to four herds around your farm at the same time and you get into a drought situation, you are in real trouble because you're getting around your grazing rotation too quickly. And so the bigger the herd, the less herds you have, let's say you go from three down to one, well now you're getting around, you've built time. You need time in your recovery. And if you get around too quickly, the grasses aren't grown back. And so also by having one large herd, you have a bigger horsepower engine. What I mean by that is you're getting more manure, more urine, and more animal impact placed on the land. And also, you know, we have basically uh, one herd 365 days of the year. And by doing that, people say, well, yeah, but you got the bulls in there. Well, we're trying to mimic nature. And in nature, there's nobody taking the whitetail deer bucks out of the does and so we've been on this program now for about four to five years and what we're finding out is the cows are moving back towards spring and our hope and 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 expertise of calling the animals that don't fit in that program over time you know we may be back to where we have one herd we don't have to take the animals out 
and it's going to be more focused on what happens in nature. Because in nature, there's no deer that are fawning in the middle of the winter. That's when the nutrients are the, at the lowest. They always fawn or, or kid or lamb when you have the most nutrients. And so that's what we're focused on. Um, we were fearful of having, you know, 40 to 50 bulls in with our cows because you think, oh, my gosh, there's going to be fights and pushing and shoving and, you know, fighting over the ones that are in heat. We don't see that at all. And the reason we don't see that at all is because from those little bull, those little baby bull calves are born, they're sparring and pushing each other and playing around from the time they're basically three weeks old until they're six months old. And they've already worked all that out. And so when it t comes time for breeding season, we have zero, zero fighting. They, they just don't fight. Um, they, they would rather chase the cows around and try and get them bred. If you take the bulls out and you separate them from the cow herd, and then you, let's say you would dump in 20 to 30 bulls into the cows, it's gonna be a wreck. I mean, they are gonna fight and fight and fight until they figure out who's the boss man. And in the meantime, your cows aren't getting bred. <laughs> Thank you to our supporters Rebel Kitchen. Rebel Kitchen chose to become a certified B Corporation so they could stand up and proudly be measured against the highest standards of social and environmental performance, accountability and transparency. They're honoured to be part of this movement driving change and playing their part in solving world social and environmental problems. They believe in a future where companies not only compete to be the best in the world, but also the best for the world. Steve Gabriel is an ecologist, educator and forest farmer who's lived most of his life in the Finger Lakes region of New York. He was at the Oxford Real Farming Conference earlier this year, where Farmerama reporter James Fryer caught up with him about his ideas on silver pasture. Steve has some great tips on integrating trees, grasses and animals in a single system. The way I define silver pasture is when someone is intentionally combining trees and livestock and forages and they're actively cultivating all those components and then they're orchestrating the relationship between those things. So they're putting the right animal in the right place at the right time. They're making sure that they're moving their animals so that there's not damage being done to the forage or the trees. And they're looking to maximize, you know, the productivity of site. And so certain sites might be better in the spring versus the summer, you know, different seasonality uh, really comes into play. But we're kind of managing that complexity uh, in a grazing system. In America, silvopasture is incredibly uncommon. <laughs> What's most common is what we call their woodland pasture, which is farmers using the pasture as sort of a dumping ground for animals when it's hot or cold or they don't have a place for them. The actual practice of silvopasture in the U.S. is, yeah, is, is lagging. The interest in grass-fed production and pasture-based management is rapidly increasing, and so we're trying to kind of jump on the coattails of that. Mm -hmm. But there's, you know, a handful of good examples. It's a really kind of uh, new concept for farms in the U.S., which have traditionally been very much cleared land, you know, tillage-based farms. And then livestock has really gone the way of confinement. So, so we have a bit of a hill to climb. I think the forest is a place that people feel, you know, a sense of comfort and a sense of respite. And, and those qualities, I think, are important on a farm, too. I've just been fascinated at how 
I was taught the forest was a place to visit, but not really a place where you gained any sustenance, like food or, or medicine. And then as I dug in, it's like the most incredible place to gain those things. For me, it was um, first tapping trees and having sap and making maple syrup, which is a really traditional process where I'm from. If I work with kids, it's still the best way to get them excited is to be like, oh, do you know sugar comes from a tree, you know? And then uh, from there, um, I got into actually woodland mushroom cultivation. Uh, Silva pasture came a lot later when we started grazing on our farm. Uh, and I just was interested in planting trees. I was like, how can we make a farm that at some point we'll walk off of it? We should be able to walk off our farms and there's a forest behind us, right? And, and I think that that's the vision I have for our land. And I think other people are really curious about that attracted to the idea but we're just not trained to think that way so it takes a bit of a mind shift governments and agencies have historically called the woods sort of a wasteland they haven't put a lot of value there i think that's starting to change slowly but what i'm inspired by is the farmers are always at the cutting edge right like they're most receptive and interested and adaptable and they say okay if this makes sense and i can justify the time and energy i'll do it uh and then the officials say, you know, it's interesting, all these people start talking about this agroforestry thing, and then that's how it kind of changes their minds. Uh, we have a lot of work to do, too, and I think one of the challenges, like I mentioned, in the U.S. is there's this legacy of sort of trashing the woods with animals. So a lot of the foresters in the U.S. and, and agriculture folks are really weary of it. Through our extension program, you know, which is a university-based program, it's actually really important for us to advocate for silvopasture and sort of support the farms, because when officials see that an institution like that is is saying, yes, there's research for this, there's a good justification, that actually really changes things. So that's kind of, we're working at it from the farmer angle and the institution angle. I think in getting our civil pasture started, we were starting to think about it, and then in 2016 on our farm, we had this historic drought. We had the driest year, supposedly on record, or at least one of the driest years. And, uh, and for us, that meant that after our first rotation, we got back around, there was no pasture. It just hadn't regrown, and we were sort of out of food. So we kind of looked at the edges of our land that sort of abandoned hedgerows and there's a few acres here, a few acres there that were all kind of abandoned areas. And we said, you know, there's food there, it's green. Woody plants seem to do just fine in the drought. So let's put the animals in there and see what happens. And we did a lot of pruning and cutting and feeding the animals, you know, uh, from all that material. And they were able to do just fine on that for like 40 days. And then we got them back on pasture. And, and at the end of the year, the, the, the kind of measure we would think of as maybe the, the gain, the weight gains, were really no different than a normal year. And that made us realize, you know, what we had stumbled on, um, just as out of necessity, was actually something we could do more intentionally. <laughs> um, so we set out to like, okay, let's manage these hedgerows and areas more, let's plant more trees, let's, by the time the next drought comes, let's be even more prepared. And so we're working on that. The challenge is, you know, figuring out how to get trees established and growing without, you know, being able to spend ever as much time as you want. So we've killed a lot of trees. That's been our biggest challenge is the spacing of the rows or the clusters, the techniques to protect them. You know, it's really the first three years of a tree's life that it needs the most protection. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, we think about where we are, like deer browse, we could have rabbits and voles, we could have things chewing on. So we're trying to minimize those things. We also plant really dense because we know that some trees will just be lost. And we realized over time that we needed to actually do our spacing a bit further apart because the sheep really didn't like narrow rows to graze in. They, they tend to kind of fan out when they graze. And so if you have narrow rows, they don't really get to the corners of the paddock. So we went from like 30 feet, like 10 meters between rows to like 60, 60 feet or 20 meters, you know, like really open it up so that 
and then eventually we can go back in and add another row of trees mm -hmm. and move the fencing. But um, it's a bit of a, a process there, and I think anyone that's getting into it should just accept that you're going to probably kill a bunch of trees, <laughs> and that's okay. It's just like part of the process. There's there's obviously endless potential of what species you could plant. I, for the book, looked through the research and really thought about criteria that could kind of narrow the list to the best bets to get started. So. Is there research about their fodder value for animals? Uh, are they really adaptable to like a wide range of sites? At least maybe there's a lot of subspecies that we could look at. Um, if they're easy to propagate because it's expensive to buy all the material, so you know that that's an important one. Fast growing. I mean, I, I we gotta you know factor in that if we take land out of production to plant trees, then we want to probably put it back into pasture as quickly as possible. So I'm just kind of impatient that way. <laughs> Can that tree get to a good size by five years to be grazed around? Yeah, so the, that, those kind of qualities in the cool temperate climate anyway led me to see that willow, poplar, and uh, black locust, and mulberry were kind of the four that really floated to the top and offer kind of a nice balance of, of fodder that animals can eat really, um, like a lot of, like poplar they could eat all day, versus like willow, which is high in condensed tannins, which is great sort of medicinally, uh, but does limit their intake, and then same with the Black locust, very high in protein, and same with the mulberry, very high in nutrients. But you know, all these things together actually can formulate, I think, a very good, good diet. In addition to the grasses, we're not eliminating the grasses or anything, but it's sort of a supplement at this point. And how do you manage the the potential damage from from grazing animals? So we really emphasize training our animals to electric fence. For the sheep, we really need to use the net fencing. For cattle, you could, if they're well trained, you can get a single strand of poly rope. Tends to be enough. If they respect the fence, they don't tend to challenge it, and so we can get away with quite a bit. Like we don't even electrify our net fencing sometimes if we just like wrap a tree in it, that the sheep will stay off. They're so afraid of the fence that we can actually leave the fence off, and they won't even. They're like, okay, you know. And and, and part of that's like giving them enough food so they're content. We tend to fence out the trees and just literally put the edge of the paddock where the row of trees is, and then you know eventually we can incorporate that back into the paddock, and then we could plant another row, but. We like to use um, like Google Earth a lot. It's like a very free program. You can do all the measurements and you can kind of lay things out and think it through there. I think the other thing we realized is within a row, we try to stick with one species of tree just because it's easier to manage consistency. And then maybe every other row is like a different species so that we get diversity. Um, but if we do a row with like four or five different species within the row, it's, it's really hard to manage that. So we try to keep it simple to manage but also diverse at the same time. You know, I work with small farmers across all sorts of enterprises, and the common thing is those that think about their markets, they develop a business plan. It's all the boring stuff. It's not the reason you get into farming. And, and they, you know, really keep track and, and budget. Those are the ones that are profitable. And it doesn't matter if you're making milk or cheese or if you're grazing livestock for meat or if you're doing mushrooms or, you know, cider. There's examples of all those enterprises, people doing really well, people not. And I think the big factor is that doing the homework and developing and, and Markets seem to be the thing people leave to last. It's actually kind of the most important to start with. So with civil pasture, we're talking about grass-fed animal products, whether that's meat or milk or fiber, and that's the marketing angle that is available to us right now. It's growing, the demand's there. People are wanting to learn generally more about their food, and I think with livestock, it's been pretty clear from some surveys that once people realize there's a difference, they want animals that are on pasture. I think that's the angle, rather than trying to market civil pasture. And then in the future, maybe we have a tree-fed or a, a tree-based certification or something like that, but, you know, later. <laughs>
Carbon sequestration is a tool to perk up the ears of officials and to potentially get funding. Like we're getting some funding on our farm to plant trees because of the carbon benefit. I also think that as awareness continues to increase, even in the U.S., because most of the citizens in the U.S. are really on board with the changing climate, I think that understanding and, and backing climate smart farming is going to be something that people want to do more and more. So I think if you're on that bandwagon, you're going to be, your markets are going to be stronger. On a society level, the carbon benefits there, but on a farm level, it's the resilience to the change in climate is what's important. In the wettest year ever or in the driest year ever, the trees kind of look the same. They have that benefit. I think that's the big selling point for farms. It'd be great if we could all just have pasture and trees, but the animals have to be in there to, to actually make that system work. That's how it's always been. That's how it's always going to be. So I think economically it makes sense. But again, I think the resiliency, the kind of adaptation aspects are really what's going to sell it to, to a farmer. And I guess the other thing is if you know folks want to learn more about Silva Pasture, about the book, it's just www.silvapasturebook.com. And uh, we have an online course coming up in 2019, in Mar uh, starting in March. It's like a six-week course, so if people want to really dive into this and kind of the minute details, that's something that's available out there. Now, a heads up. Back in episode 33, we reported on the Scottish Food Coalition's Kitchen Table Talk campaign. It was a chance for people to share their hopes, dreams and demands for the future of food in Scotland. At the time, a public consultation on the so-called Good Food Nation Bill was imminent, or so we thought. Nearly a year later, the consultation has finally begun, and you have until the 29th of March to submit your response. If you're in Scotland, please do take a few minutes to respond. It's crucial the government understands there's a real appetite for brave, ambitious change. Some of the consultation questions are a bit wordy, to say the least. So Nourish Scotland has put together a really handy guide. It includes simple explanations of the questions, as well as suggested responses, which you can use, edit or ignore. You'll find the guide on the Nourish website, nourishscotland.org. And again, the consultation closes on the 29th of March. And finally today, we're in Sicily, where we join a wine tasting session with Fabrizia Lanza and Alberto Tasca, well known in Italy for promoting sustainability and indigenous grapes. We love hearing Fabrizia describe the wines using straightforward language to describe her taste experiences. Alberto goes on to share with us his feelings on the importance of measurement the value of knowledge sharing, and the need to look beyond flashy storytelling. We hope to feature more from the world of natural wine, as this is another area where the stories of regenerative agriculture are important. I love this, uh, this sharpness and still the velvetiness. So I understand we are in a completely different place because this wine kind of picks me coats my mouth and then kicks me. It's a, it's a very interesting experience. We started to talk about sustainability around 20 years ago, not before. And that's crazy because for thousands and thousands of years we didn't care about the planet. We thought that the planet was something that was always generous, always give to everybody. And our life was looking at the Homo sapiens as the, the center of the world. So everything was homocentric. Something changed, so okay, the words say change, you have to change the approach, but where, how, and 
uh, was really difficult to understand. So the only things that convinced me to uh, find a way was just to measure our impact. So we try to be always uh, in a lower impact for each wine. Each kind of wine have different kind of approach in, in the cellar and the vineyard, so I think you have to measure everything. We try to, to measure even all the biodiversity, so it means people that go around the state try to see leaves or white herbs or whatever, and even small animals that are under the soil, some animals that you can catch only in the night because they come out on the night, and you have people that go around to see that. And it's so interesting how changing the approach that you have, you see this kind of biodiversity that is growing, growing, and growing. So this guy, uh, you remember we tasted this pasito yesterday with the sweet, and that's a natural pasito, how it was made by his grandfather and his father without adding nothing. While this pellegrino make the same base as he do, but at half the fermentation they add alcohol, un po' come fanno col marsala. And then they sell uh, these bottles of wine at a much cheaper, they do one million, so they sell it at much cheaper, but they have a whole world of customers getting used to this idea of pasito, which is a sweet, mild, uh, kind of uh, uh, gentle wine. That it's, it's the same concept we said when Nikki came about this infantilization of people. As soon as you do something sweet, mild, cheerful, people go for it and you gain the market very easily. So before the competition factor was I have my knowledge, I will not share with anybody because I'm only the best. That doesn't make sense. Now we are killing ourselves, we need to share everything as we know and try to develop our knowledge on it. So there is not anymore any, let's say, head value on competition if you know something more than me. It's just we need to run all together and that, that's really important. We have an alliance of producers. We meet every time and we meet uh, every month. We share documents and our needs. So exactly what we need, what kind of problem we have. We have this kind of problem. Then we have a, a scientific committee that is now we have eight members inside. And they are especially, they work in the university and they try to solve our problem. So we give them the problem. They are totally independent from us. They try to give us the solution, we select the best solution and if the solution is something that we like, we put money in the research to solve the problem. But there is not any conflict of interest. Information is totally open now. We have this independent commission, it's really important because they used to go all over to travel the world to go and listen to many conventions that talk about uh, uh, sustainable materials. So, Research, research, research. And then if my neighbor has a benchmark that is lower than mine or the result is lower than mine, I ask him, oh, how do you do it? And then I try to, to copy, try to do the best, the same thing. Milky, interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not as good as San Giorgi that on Milky could build up a whole romance. <laughs> but <laughs> um, vero, vero, I agree. I, I'm also very... Uh, intrigued by the balance. These two are extremely balanced. So you have this first and this second. While these two are a little bit shorter, I feel, 
and um, as if a younger, a younger, uh, less maybe, uh, I don't know, uh, as if the colors of the island are not exploited entirely, and you have less experience in terms of vintages. Storytelling is beautiful. There are people that know how to communicate in a really well way, and everybody's. I love poetry, I love philosophy and things, but it's really important that we are now start to be really conscious of what is going on. So it's really important that we all know what we buy and why we buy it and where it comes from and how it is made. And that's something that is really uh, need to change in our culture. Because we don't have any data to understand really well, we know some story. Marketing now is storytelling for everything, but storytelling, what is it? It's something that is really is true. It's something that's called deeply to what is the impact that the product has or is something that is really nice and charming and sexy and so that's why we buy it. So probably we, we need to focus on it in a really strong and more serious way. So it's really difficult to be transparent if people doesn't want to read. Because to, to, to let people be more knowledge is not just, I mean, the certification, so you can trust us, we can put the face and you can trust my face, but if you want to know exactly what is going on, you have to read. And read for every product that you eat or drink every day, book like this, I think is quite too much. But as much as we go in, in deep and inside this kind of everything, of things, especially when we acquire something, where we need to buy, when in your kitchen, when you need to buy meat, know where it comes from, how it's made, and things. That's something that can help the planet. They have a 10-week Cook the Farm program, which runs each year. And the school is also open for general hospitality from spring to autumn each year, offering lots of classes, lunch lessons, and accommodation. See our social media for more information on this. Farmerama is made by me, Katie Ravel, Joe Barrett, and Abby Rose. This month also with Susie McCarthy. Thank you to Claire Robertson and James Fryer for sending in recordings. Community support is by Annie Landless, Eliza Jenkins and Olivia Oldham. And our theme music is by Owen Barrett. Did you notice some new tunes in there this month? Thank you all for listening. And if you like what you hear, please do pass the recommendation on to your farming friends or even your non-farming friends. And if you can find a few minutes to write us a review on iTunes, that really does help us out and, and allows more people to find us. Bye.